Okay, I'd like to invite you to come back to your seats. We're going to get started. I want to welcome you to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I am one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're here this morning with us as we kick off our Advent series. Um, This week, we're going to be walking through four different chapters in the book of Isaiah. Okay, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has a lot to say about uh, the coming Messiah and the promises found in Jesus. And much of the verses we tend to hear and a lot of the songs we sing actually have their roots in Isaiah. And the chapter we're going to focus on this morning is Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to just read the first seven verses. The first seven verses. That's what we are going to focus on. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his bird and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this season where we prepare ourselves and observe this time where we anticipate Um, Christmas and observing the birth of Jesus, I pray that we would um, just stop this morning, not get too far ahead of ourselves, and um, look at what the people in uh, Isaiah's time period were facing. I pray we would put ourselves in their position and to hear Isaiah's words as they would have heard them. And I pray as as we understand God's message of good news here too, his people in Isaiah's time, I pray that you would change us as a result of that same good news. You would change our minds and our hearts and change the way we live as we leave this place. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So Advent, kicking off Advent, and just as a reminder, um, Advent literally means arrival, means arrival. So during this season, we prepare uh, for the arrival of Jesus. And during Advent, we really do two things. We want to do two things, kind of two, two things you can keep in mind as we move forward through the season. One, we remember. We remember. Um, we remember what God has done for um, sinners, for sinners like you and me. That he sent his son to die um, a, a death that we all deserve to die. And he showed us grace in the gospel in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And we remember that. We remember that Jesus came the first time as a baby, humbly as a baby, like every other human being would come. And he would lay down his life on behalf 
of sinners. So we remember. We remember what Christ has done, but we also wait. We wait. We wait for the day at some point in the future. We don't know that day, but it could, could, could come any day where Jesus will return a second time. And this time he will return as a king, a victorious king, riding on a war horse. He will judge and he will condemn sin and Satan. And he will judge humanity. And he will set up the new heavens and the new earth. And this is called the second return of Christ. So as we find ourselves in between these two things, remembering and waiting, we need to keep both of them in tension this morning. We need to remember, but we also need to wait. But waiting, especially for something good to happen, is so hard. Right, kids? Kids in the room? Waiting's hard. You're going to do a lot of waiting this time of year. Right? Presents get under that tree? You've got to wait. Right? When's Christmas? It's coming, right? Jackson's already asking, hey, when do we get to open presents, buddy? Just wait. Right? You got a few weeks before we do that. And what makes it hard for all of us to wait is our impatience. Is our impatience. We're not a patient people. And even in this culture, it makes it worse where we're just so busy. Our schedules are full. We feel like we have no margin. And therefore, it almost forces us to be impatient. It, it forces us to want things now and hurry right at the minute because we've got other stuff to do. We've got to move on. And this is how we tend to live. It's really, really hard to wait. There's a book I'm reading right now called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's by a pastor called, uh, named John Mark Comer and um, talks a lot about uh, this idea of waiting in the book. And he has a couple of quotes here from others that I want to read to you. Corey Tinboom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. There's a truth in that. Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. Another quote, and this one will be on the screen, uh, Michael Zigarelli from the Charleston Southern University School of Business um, conducted this um, survey called, he called the Obstacles to Growth. And it, he surveyed um, 20, over 20,000 Christians from across the globe trying to get an idea of what, what barriers exist in our lives as Christians that keep us from growing, that keep us from looking more like Jesus. And here's what he found out. He said, it may be the case that, number one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. Right? This is what we face in our world as we talk about patience and waiting. And there's nothing that unites us as human beings. Whether you're in here and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, what unites us um, is, is this human experience of having to wait, especially for good things. No matter what your background, education level, where you were born, whatever it is, we all have to wait. It's part of the human condition, especially for good things. And this is why I think the Advent season is necessary for the shaping of our lives. It teaches us how to wait if we allow it in this season. In a sense, Advent trains us on how to wait. And really, the hardest thing about waiting is, is not knowing when that's going to end, right? Or if it's ever going to end, whatever you're waiting for. 
right? We, this is what we struggle with. Um, we, the, there's very few things that you can put a countdown timer on and look at to see, oh, I have this amount of time until I'm finished waiting. Maybe in trivial matters we can put a countdown clock, but most um, hard, deep matters of life, we don't get to put that clock on. And we don't know when it's going to end or if whatever we're waiting for will ever come. Okay, and, and it brings more questions often than easy answers. It, it may be questions like, if, if my plans aren't coming to fruition, if, if my desires aren't happening, should I change course or hold out? Should I change directions here? Or are, my, are these, these, these um, is this discontentment, these unfulfilled desires, are they uh, symptoms of sinful discontentment? Or are they a blessing from God that he hasn't fulfilled those desires yet? Right? So waiting is hard. And when we start thinking about why, why do I want this so bad or why am I having to wait so long, those questions can come up. Things like waiting for a spouse, waiting to be able to have children, waiting the, the, for the pain of losing a loved one to go away or just get a little better, the, he's, the healing of some physical ailment, the healing of a relationship that is, that is broken, waiting for comfort to come in the midst of debilitating anxiety and depression. Or simply just waiting for God to help you change in that one area. That area that we, maybe we all struggle with and we know that area for each of us and we just are waiting for God to help us change in that area. We're all waiting. This is part of the human condition. And the, the great thing about looking at a passage like Isaiah 9 that we're going to look at today, when Isaiah spoke this to God's people, that, that God gave him the message, and he spoke it to God's people, they were waiting. They were waiting. They're, the context here is they were waiting for God's help. So let's jump in and walk through this passage. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. One thing to keep in mind here is that is the, the, the way that Isaiah is talking here, he seems to be talking in the past tense. And the reason for that is because he is looking, a prophet looks forward to the future and can see what is actually going to happen. God has given him that insight. And he is speaking to God's people like what he is talking about has already happened. And that's why it seems like he's using the past tense here. But as they're hearing it, none of these things have happened, according to God's people. Like they're hearing it, and these things haven't happened. And verse 1 starts there with a but, because at the end of chapter 8, we will see that um, the Assyrians, this mighty power of the day, is on a methodical, systematic uh, mission to wipe out every nation between what is present-day Iraq and the Mediterranean Sea. They're going through nation after nation, wiping them out, and, and Israel is next. And they know the Assyrians are probably just outside the gate, waiting to come in and overtake control, and if need be, wipe out all of Israel. And they're panicking. They're in darkness. They need help. They, they are begging they're looking everywhere. If you read, go back and read chapter 8, you, you'll see they're looking everywhere. They start other places other than God looking for help. What can save them? What can help them? What can get them out of the darkness? They are panicking. They're about to face political oppression from the Assyrians. 
but they've been facing spiritual oppression by their own doing. We, this context also, they've been uh, ignoring God. They haven't been following God as a country. And part of their judgment is God allowing the Assyrians to come in and conquer them to get their attention. They are facing extreme darkness. And this is why verse 2 talks about darkness. And in this passage, he's comparing the coming of this Messiah to, to other rulers and kings who rule by power and oppression. He's going to communicate here that this Messiah is going to come and rule, with, rule the kingdom based on justice and righteousness. And notice in verse 2 when he talks about the people have seen a great light and on them a light has shone. Here he's t- they, did, they didn't do anything to produce the light. They didn't go get the light. They didn't act in such a way that light would be produced. They were groping in darkness. They were begging for someone to save them. God shone the light. And this is the gospel, right? This is the gospel. This is, this is uh, God's grace and mercy showing up when humans did nothing to deserve it. And this is our story as followers of Jesus. When we were at our worst, God saved us. God saved us at our worst, and we did nothing to deserve it. We didn't, we didn't do anything to earn his grace. It wasn't a formula where if we act this way or we clean ourselves up to some degree, that God's grace will come into our lives. No, God's light shines into our hearts and he changes us and gives us faith and we believe. This is how people become followers of Jesus. This is the gospel. And throughout the scriptures, this, this idea of light um, represents the presence of God. And when God comes into the picture, darkness cannot exist. God, darkness cannot exist around God. And so when, when God comes in, his presence comes into the picture in the scriptures, light is, the darkness is expelled. It's expelled out. So this Christmas, when we see these lights around this room, kids, when you see lights and you go look at lights and you see lights on your tree or on your house or whatever, think about God being the light of the world. Take this imagery that we have at Christmas, and when we see these lights hanging up, and as we go throughout the next month, think about the, 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 the light coming into a dark world. And the light shines a lot brighter in the dark. Right? That's why we, we, we put on the lights at dark, and we turn, on, um, the, turn the lights off maybe in our living room when we light the tree up, so the light can be seen more. So God's light has shined in the darkness to come to help and rescue the Israelites, but it hasn't happened yet. This is prophetic. This is what will happen, Isaiah is saying. Let's look at verse, verses three through five. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You see joy here, connecting it back to light in that, that verse. Verse four, for the yoke of his bird and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in batter, battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And again, in verse 3 here, we see the joy and he's connecting it back to the light. The light has produced this joy. And why is this joy produced? He's describing what the nation of Israel will be like when this promise comes to fruition. But what's produced this light? Well, verse 4, he has broken um, the oppressor. Broken the, he's, he's, he's taken the yoke away, he's broken the staff and the rod of the oppressor. And he throws in here, you have broken it as on the day of Midian. And God's people here would have remembered what happened on the day of Midian. This was Gideon led God's army and, and won this 
um, improbable victory only because of God's help. The odds were stacked against him. It looked like certain destruction for God's people. God shows up. He's with Gideon, and they destroy the Midianites. They win this battle, um, and so he's, he's causing the Israelites to remember back. Hey, remember your history. Remember when I showed up when the odds were insurmountable. Remember this. And then in verse 5, he talks about, um, this really just means the wars will cease, right? The, the wars will be no more. For every boot of trampling war and batter tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Those things will exist no more. Okay, when Jesus comes in his fullness and sets up his kingdom, there will be no more war. There will be no more conflict when Jesus comes in fullness. So the reason why they have joy is, one, their oppressors will be defeated, and two, there will be no more war. And for an Israelite living at this time, this is really good news. This is good news to hear. This, is, this, is, this will produce joy in them when they hear these things. Okay, so we know this joy's come. We know how that's going to, we know what's going to happen here, but how's that going to come? Verse, verse 6, for to us a child is born. Isaiah, God through Isaiah is saying, this is how it's going to happen. A child will be born. And, and it, you, you'd have to, they, he's got him worked up, right? Okay, these things are going to happen. How's it going to happen? The, the Israelites are waiting. God's people are waiting to hear how this is going to happen. And then he starts off by, a child's going to be born. And you almost have to think that would be somewhat of a letdown to God's people as they're hearing this. Wait, a child? A ch- okay, okay, great. Okay, child will be born. Great. And this is not, um, uh, this is not ununique to Isaiah. All throughout the book of Isaiah, he goes back to Jesus, the promised Messiah, being born as a child. He wants to make sure that we know this conquering king, Jesus, when he comes back one day riding a war horse, making everything right, it all started with him as a baby. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and here's the four kind of famous titles given to Jesus, wonderful counselor, which is kind of opposed to human wisdom. There's, these are all intentional names, opposed to human wisdom. Mighty God, this child that is also God. Everlasting Father, one of the things when a ruler um, would, would, would come in or be crowned king, he would, he would kind of set himself up as the father figure to the nation. He would kind of be referred to as father. This is why in our country we have the founding fathers, right? These are the fathers of our country. But here it's everlasting father. He's making a clear designation. This father is not only temporal, it is eternal, everlasting father, and then prince of peace. And this is the one that had to be most um, mind-boggling to them because this, he's going to bring peace. Wars are going to cease, but they would have well known, and we, I think we kind of know too, that if you are going to bring peace, that usually starts with a decisive war. Like you have to make war to then bring peace behind the war. But that's not what this is saying. He actually is going to make peace by modeling peace and being an agent of peace. And that is just mind, would have been mind-blowing for a people who were well acquainted with war and battle to hear. So there's two reasons for joy. God has delivered them from oppression and has ended the war. And he's done this by, by sending a person. Jesus being incarnated, born of a woman, born as a human. This isn't, he, didn't, he didn't bring a theological system he didn't bring a system of morality. He didn't bring a political ideology to save God's people. This was a person. Everything that God is going to do in the future as it relates to the Israelites and for us comes down to a person, period. It all starts with Jesus. In verse 7, 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is eternal. It's forever. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is the promise God gives his people. Isaiah is looking ahead. He's talking about something that has already happened. He's telling, God's telling his people, get ready. A redeemer's coming. He's coming. But here's what we have to realize, and this is where the waiting comes in. Um, from the time that God's people are hearing this to when Jesus was born was 700 years. That's a lot of waiting. It's a lot of waiting. That's double the amount our country has, um, our, our country has, been, has been a nation, right? Double that amount of time, 700 years. So built into God trying to, to, to get them hopeful and to expect this is this idea of waiting. Waiting expectfully and hopefully. And for the Christians there, the, the God's people in Isaiah's time, it was the waiting for um, Jesus to come the first time. But we're on the other side of that by God's grace in the time we live, and we get to celebrate what Jesus has already done, but now we're waiting for Jesus to return a second time. So how do we do that? How do we wait expectfully, expectantly and hopefully? Um, well, first we do that by resting and trusting in the gospel, knowing that when Jesus came and was incarnated and was born of a woman and born of a virgin and lived a life that we, none of us could live, lived a perfect life, and he died a death we all deserve to die and rose on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death. That is the good news of the gospel. That's the gospel. And we, we, we celebrate and we remember by primarily remembering the gospel, remembering that and celebrating that. And that's our foundation that everything else is built upon. But we still wait because it's not complete yet. What we live in what the theologians call the already, but not yet. When the Christ has come, saving those who have faith in him, but he has not returned completely to make everything right, to set up his new heavens and new earth. He meets it. He gives us joy in the already, and he gives us comfort and hope that everything will be made right eventually. So here's the deal. If your heart is heavier this Advent season, um, and this is for kids too. Kids, if you're, if, you're, if you're sad right now, or if you're missing someone right now, um, it, I, I know it's hard. It's hard. But we can, can, can take the small joys of, of Christmas and the small joys of the things that God brings us this season, the small, the small joys of remembering uh, what Jesus has done during this time and, and taste it as something that has not fully happened yet. It's like a foretaste. It's a preview. Kids, you'll get this. When you, when you go to a movie and you see a trailer for a movie that's coming out, like it's just enough of that movie to get you excited, but it's not the whole movie, Right? But you remember that trailer, and you long to, to see the full movie played out when it actually comes out, but you have to wait. But you have a taste for what it's going to be like. So I pray if you're, if you're, if you're feeling a sense of heaviness, all of us during this time of year, take, just, just be thankful and take stock and joy in the small things and allow that to be a taste in the rejoicing that will come as God is doing with his people um, through the prophet Isaiah. We can, we can start, if we have that expectation and have that hope and can, can imagine the joy we will have one day in the future, we can sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We can, we can say, yes, come, Emmanuel. Come again. Come soon. 
But thank you for coming the first time. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. And there's the tension of the already, but not yet. We rejoice in what Christ has done, and we realize it's a foretaste of what's to come. So here's what I want us to do, kind of, kind of thinking of how, how does this look this week? I want us to practice waiting. I want us to practice patience, because this is what God was expecting um, his people to do in Isaiah. And here's the deal. I am not a patient person, not at all. Um, I am the guy who plays the game at stoplights. Like I'll be pulling up to a stoplight, and it's a game to me. I'll try to figure out which line's going to get through that light fastest. I play the left turn straight game, right? Like if both these places lead to the same place, which one gets me there quicker? I do that at every single light I come up to, right? Um, all those things. And um, grocery store lines, right? Like you, you, you've done this. Like you look at the lines, right? Especially this time here. You look at the lines. See who's in what basket. Do they have a bunch of small items? Do they have a couple of big items? It's not just the fullness of the basket that matters. It's how many items they have to check, Right? You don't even look, you don't have to look at the people in line. You have to look at the checker too. What kind of person is the checker? Are they fast? Are they slow? Like, like how are they? What's their rate of checking out per minute, right? Like, that's me. I promise you, I am not exaggerating. This actually goes through my mind when I'm there. I almost, I do everything fast. I'm just in a hurry. I eat fast. I drink fast, all those things. And so this is really hard for me, all I'm saying. I am with you. This is really hard but I think my joy would increase if I became a more patient person who learned to wait um, because I'm impatient. And oftentimes we just don't believe that God is at work in our lives when we wait, I think. It just, we just don't, if we just had to admit it, like I don't believe in God's sovereignty, that I don't need to hurry through the grocery store. Like he's given me enough time and I'm gonna get everything done in his sovereignty that he wants to, me to get done that day without rushing through stoplights and pushing the speed limit, and all of those things that I am prone to do, because I don't believe that God has given me enough time, and that's just, that's just a lie, and I need to repent of that, um, and just to feel, we, we feel this need to squeeze every ounce out of every day, and hurry through every day. That's me, um, but I think Advent is this annual reminder that we have that God has come, has come, and will come again, and we need to practice waiting, waiting, um, So what does it mean to wait upon the Lord? Eugene Peterson said this, waiting, and he uses it in the terms of prayer, which I think prayer is a huge part of this. Waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. A disciplined refusal to act before God acts. So wait for God to act, right? Um, This is a great opportunity to train our souls to wait, to wait. We need to slow down. And embrace the, the, the words of the popular carol we'll sing, let every heart prepare him room. How's your, is your heart preparing him room? Are you patient this season? Will you slow down this season? Will you wait this season? Instead of reacting, let's plan for rest and waiting. Instead of over planning, let's under plan and make a few, a few key memories. One of our issues is I just want to soak, I love this time of season, I just want to soak it all up, Right? Let's just, let's hold off on that and pick one or two things and go all in on those things and make those things the memories. Instead of shopping from others for for guilt, like I have to go, you know, I have to go do this and that usually we procrastinate because I don't really want to go shopping from, instead of shopping out of guilt, let's let's only shop uh, to receive receive joy from giving those gifts. So whatever it means, let's only shop out of a sense of joy and not guilt. Instead of being overwhelmed by the lights, I already talked about this, let's remember the light of the world who came into our utter spiritual darkness. 
Instead of overstimulating ourselves with everything that's going on, let's slow down. Let's create enough margin to dwell on Jesus. His first arrival and his second arrival that is coming. And one practical thing, and I already mentioned it, is, is this idea of slowing. If there's one spiritual discipline I want us to, to try this week, and this is, this is homework. I really do want us to try this, right? Is this idea of slowing. Uh, Richard Foster uh, uh, claims this is a discipline. Uh, John Ortberg says this. Um, this idea of slowing is it's a, it's a, it's cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. Right? It's like going to the gym of waiting, right? Like we go there knowing it may not be pleasant, but it's for our good. Orberg continues, the basic idea behind the practice of slowing is this. Slow down your body, slow down your life. And what he is saying here, that we, to slow down our souls, to slow down our hearts, which is usually the problem in this, we have to also think about our minds and our bodies. Like they're all connected. We're not, we're not these individual pieces just floating around. So we need to think about things differently. We need to practice and, and, and behave differently in order to get to our hearts. Here's a couple of, three examples. And these, these are from uh, that book I referenced, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He mentions a list of these, and I took three of these that I think would be really practical and, and, and fairly easy for us to do. So here's three things to practice this week. First, um, drive the speed limit. Not one over, drive the speed limit. Or get in the slow lane if you're on the interstate and stay there. Don't leave the slow lane. And pay attention. You can, you're already shivering. Some of you are just like, I mean, this is awful for you to think about. Um, I've worked through it all week. I'm, I'm with you. Um, like, so do this and pay attention to what's happening. When you do this, just pay attention to why you're addicted. You'll find out you are addicted to getting over in that left lane and moving on. Or you're addicted, you just can't make yourselves go the speed limit, okay? But try it, and once you get over that awkwardness, that uncomfortability, like actually take that time, that extra time where you're not frazzled to think about Jesus. Think about your family. Think about what you're thankful for, right? Think about things that maybe you can't think about when you're in a frant- at a frantic pace. Number one, so that's driving. Number two, um, don't check your phone until after your morning routine, okay? So here's what I mean. Have a morning routine, right? It doesn't have to be an hour. Just find three things to do for the first 10 minutes of your day. Maybe it's brushing your teeth, pouring coffee, and one other thing, whatever it is. But don't pick up your phone until you've done a few of those things first, okay? There's all sorts of studies. I mentioned a few of them last week that, that, the, that checking your phone does nothing for our waiting. It does nothing for our patience to start the day with. So try to put as much time between you waking up and checking your phone as possible, okay? Um, and I'm going to try this this week, but most studies say you should move it out of your bedroom. Like, I just, just get the phone out of the bedroom. It'll help you to go to sleep. It'll help you waking up. I haven't done that yet, but I really want to. That's a goal of mine, to get it out of my bedroom when I sleep. Last one. Third, um, show up places 10 minutes early, Right? Show up places. Wherever you're going, show up 10 minutes early. Couple, what this means is you can't plan your schedule as full, which is a good thing, um, and show up early so you won't be frantically racing to get there on time. And then when you do show up 10 minutes early, don't touch your phone. Like, right? Like, be bored for 10 minutes. Just 10 minutes. Let your mind go. Make yourself be patient for those 10 minutes and wait for whatever that appointment is, whatever you're there for, okay? So again, three simple, driving, Uh, checking your phone early in the morning, 
and showing up 10 minutes early. Just think about these things and try them, but pay attention while you're doing them. Pay attention to what this does to your heart and your soul. Again, you're coming in through the mind and the body, but we're trying to change our heart and our soul from being as rushed and, our busy, and as busy, okay? We need this. We need this for our spiritual health. Our families need this because we need to set a cadence for our family that is slow and patient and that we can be present relationally, eyeball to eyeball, instead of racing everywhere. The, our brothers and sisters in this church need us to be present for each other, to be able to encourage one another during this time of year, because this is it's a hard year for a lot of people, hard time of year. And lastly, our city needs this. If, if Christians are struggling with this, then we know the rest of the world is probably struggling with it, right? That, that, that study I read at the beginning tells us that. Our world needs people who are, who are living the lives that, that are kind of infused and embodied by joy, love, peace, and hope. And I think we have to take time and carve out some margin to wait for Jesus and pray that the Spirit would cultivate those things in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your word. We haven't spent a lot of time in the prophetic books as a church, and I thank you for giving us um, books like Isaiah that um, where we see you um, thousands of years ago talking to your people, telling them about Jesus, the coming Messiah who we now call Lord, those of us who have faith in you. And, and we thank you that we can see ourselves in them. We can, we can feel the darkness in some sense that they're going through. Maybe it's under di- different circumstances, but we can all admit that this world is a dark place. We, we just see it on the news. Um, because of brokenness and sin, we feel it relationally with others. We have to say goodbye to loved ones. It's a broken, dark place, and we, we, we need your light. And that light has come once, and we, 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 we pray that you would hurry and bring that light again back to make all things right. But in the meantime, help us wait. Help us be a calm people, a peaceful people, a present people, so we can relationally um, live out your gospel to the world around us that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.